you have your Bibles, go ahead and open up them up with me to Luke chapter 20. We're going to be in verses 41 through 47 today. We're in this series called Hope, because the gospel is a story of hope. The gospel literally means good news, and through the gospel we have hope that God has made salvation available to all people through Christ. And when you read the Bible, hope is a major theme from Genesis all the way to Revelation. A few years ago, I was listening to a new believer uh, who was talking about uh, coming alive in Christ, and, and the guy was saying, you know, since I, since I started following Jesus, it just seems like everything's going well in my life. I got a new job, and, and I have a better attitude, and I'm happier. And he was giving his testimony, and that was good, but I, I was thinking to myself, uh-oh, uh, because the guy better, you know, the brother, brother better buckle up his belt and put the tray in the upright position because there's a rough landing coming because there is struggle even in the Christian life. Uh, Jesus talked about this in the Sermon on the Mount. He said in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 11, you are blessed. Now, okay, you got that part, right? You are blessed. We like that part. Okay, here's the next part. You are blessed when they insult and persecute you and falsely say every kind of evil against you because of me. Have you ever said at Thanksgiving dinner, you know what, I am so blessed this year because I've been insulted and persecuted and had people say false things about me. And yet that's what what Jesus said in, in the passages. Then he goes, he even says, be glad and rejoice because your reward is great in heaven. Now, that last part's the key to understanding this. Whenever you understand the reward of heaven, whenever you understand the reality of heaven, it allows you to endure and to rejoice and to be glad in the struggle of today. The gospel is a story of hope that takes place in the context of struggle. And here on earth, there will always be two parallel paths. You'll have the path of blessing, and you'll have the path of struggle. I used to think that life was kind of like a roller coaster. Sometimes it was good, sometimes it was bad, and it just kind of went up and down. And I, I think I've discovered that life really has these two parallel paths. At any given moment in my life, I can look over here and I can see amazing blessing, and yet at the same time, there's also struggles that we have to endure. I remember whenever we had our first child, uh, Karis, and uh, I was just so excited to be a dad. It was the answer to a 10-year prayer in our life, and I remember holding her in the hospital, oh, and uh, I was like, you know, what a blessing from God. This is what we've been praying for and longing for. I just am so deeply, deeply blessed. And then two weeks later, after sleeping two hours a night for two weeks, I was, it's just screaming at me in the middle of the night. I'm like, this is hard, you know, this is a struggle. And, and so you begin to realize that even in the greatest blessings of life, there is also this struggle and they exist in this temporal earthly realm. They exist together. Yet here's one of the distinguishing qualities of a Christian. As Christians, we have an eternal hope called heaven. When we talk about hope, we're not just talking about wishful thinking or we hope that things go better tomorrow, but when we talk about hope, it is a theological word that is anchored in eternity with Christ forever and ever, where the King of the universe will display His power once and for all, and He will remove the stench of stain of sin from His creation. Hope. 
And the Bible teaches us that in the end, hope wins. So let's look at our passage today. Luke chapter 20, verses 41 through 47. Then he, now this is Jesus here. So Jesus said to them, how can they say that the Messiah is the son of David? Now there's two technical terms in this verse that I need to drill down into to to help you understand what Jesus is talking about here. You're going to have to stick with me today, okay? I hope you drank your coffee because you need to stick with me today and think and engage in the passage. The first term is the word Messiah. The word Messiah means anointed one. Whenever you say Jesus Christ, Christ is the Greek equivalent for that word. And so you're literally saying Jesus the anointed one or Jesus the Messiah, name above all names. We sing about it. We talk about the word Messiah. The Jewish people had been enduring centuries of oppression, centuries of struggle. And they had hope that God would send the Messiah who would rescue them. In fact, whenever you read the Old Testament passages, they looked forward, they prophesied about the fact that one day God would send His anointed one who would be the Messiah, the Savior of the people. We actually use that word Messiah in our modern language, and when we use it, we usually refer to, we're usually referring to politics or perhaps athletics, Uh, you uh, Think about the Dallas Cowboys and the decades of playoff futility that we've endured. And so people think, okay, Dak Prescott's the Messiah of the Cowboys. He's the one that will save them and rescue them and bring them back to the promised land that is the Super Bowl, right? Hey, we're we're zero and zero right now. You can have hope, okay? Hope's all right at this point in the year. But, But from a theological standpoint, the Messiah would be the Savior, the one that God was going to send. The other term that's used here is the Son of David. The idea of the Messiah was that he would be a king and that he would come through the royal line of King David and that the royal line of King David would never end. It would be forever and that this king would rule the world. So here's how the Jewish people began to practically frame it. They anticipated a Messiah who would be a human being that God would bring onto the scene who would overthrow the legions of Rome and establish the Jewish empire. And so they were looking for this man to come onto the scene that would rescue them from the oppression that they were enduring under Rome. So the gospel is a story of hope that takes place in a context of struggle. And you see this unfold throughout all the pages of Scripture. Go all the way back to the Garden of Eden, and you have Adam and Eve, and you have the hope of the tree of life, and yet it is contrasted by the struggle of the knowledge of good and evil. You see Noah and his family as they get off the ark, and they see the rainbow, and it's a hope of salvation in God, and the hope of a new world, yet at the same time, they get off the ark into a world that is still enduring the struggle of sin. You find God calling Abraham and Sarah to leave their home and go to a land that he would show them. And he says to Abraham and Sarah, I'm going to form out of you a great nation. And so Abraham and Sarah, they go forth in hope, believing 
that God is going to do this. And yet when you read their story in Genesis, you also see that they go through the struggle of infertility and they also go through the struggle of doubt. We have Moses, the great liberator, who brings to the people of Israel the hope of freedom, and he leads them out of bondage, and they are marching to a new land. And even as they have the hope of God delivering them, they still are enduring the struggle of idolatry and sin. God raises up Joshua, and he mobilizes the people, and they form the new nation, and they establish themselves in the land. And then right after Joshua, we have the book of Judges. And the book of Judges, God's people get into this loop. The Bible says they turned away from God, and then God would raise up a leader who would deliver them, and then the people would turn away from God again. And so you see this loop of hope and struggle and hope and struggle that takes place through the entire Old Testament. And then you have the prophets that come onto the scene, these guys like Nahum and Habakkuk and Isaiah and Ezekiel, and they begin to look forward. And as they prophesy, you'll see in their message that over and over again, they talk about two things, hope and judgment, hope and judgment. And one of these prophets was a guy by the name of Samuel. And Samuel was given a job by God to find the anointed king of Israel, who would be the one that the Messiah would, would come from. And so Samuel goes out and he starts searching for the, the, the next king of Israel. And he finds him. And the guy he finds is an unlikely hero. He doesn't find the young man who's the national merit scholar that's the oldest one of his family who comes from a, a wealthy, well-established family. No, he finds a young man, a shepherd boy, in the back field doing the muddy job, a young man by the name of David. And if you read the Bible, Samuel anoints David as the king long before he ever became king. And then you have this fascinating story, read it sometimes, where the hand of God is on David. It's like nothing can go wrong in David's life. Everything just seems to go right. And, and even uh, God is just orchestrating the events so that David eventually sits on the throne and he becomes the greatest king that Israel has ever known. And then David messes up. I mean, he colossally messes up. You're probably familiar with the story of David and Bathsheba. It's a story, a very sordid story. Not only does it involve adultery, but it involves abuse of power and eventually leads David to have her husband killed. He thinks that he has gotten away with it. And then God confronts him through the prophet Nathan. And when David is confronted with his sin, he collapses in grief. He repents of his sin. And he realizes that he's done wrong and he needs God's forgiveness. In the Bible, you'll find sequences of words that are sometimes used. And the order is important. For example, the scriptures often tell us to believe and be baptized. We believe in Christ before we're baptized. You'll find in scripture the words repentance and faith used together. We repent from our sin, we turn from our rebellion against God, and then we place our faith in God. And faith also comes before the word hope. And so when our faith is in Christ, when our faith is in God, it leads us to a hope that comes from God. And whenever you see in 1 Corinthians 13 the words faith, hope, and love used together, 
You see that our faith in God leads us to a hope from God that leads us to the beauty of God's love. To be able to adorn ourselves in something that is genuine and real, the love of God. Have you ever reached a point in your life where you thought to yourself, God can't use me. I can't do that. I, maybe you think you could never do that. Or maybe you think, I've, I've messed up. I've done things that I shouldn't. I've harbored thoughts and attitudes that I shouldn't. God could never use me. I'm done. I find that God's power rarely reveals itself until my power empties itself. And when we reach that point where we understand that it's not about me, it's about God, that's when God really can begin to use us. And David was at an absolute rock bottom. He had totally blown it. And God gave David an oracle or a vision. It was a vision of hope that even though he had messed up, even though he was totally undeserving, God wasn't through with him and he was going to continue to use David's family and that the Messiah would come through his line. And so from that oracle, David writes Psalm 110. And Psalm 110 is one of the most often quoted passages in the entire New Testament. And Jesus quotes it right here in Luke chapter 20. Look at verse 42. Jesus says, For David says, David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord declared to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, earlier, Jesus had talked about how the Messiah is going to be the son of David. Now, Jesus says, the Messiah is going to reign as king of kings and make God's enemies a footstool. So what Jesus is getting at is there is a day coming when the Messiah is going to take control. And so here's the imagery. It was often used in antiquity, the idea of the conquering king who would so dominate his enemies that he would sit upon the throne and the enemies would kneel before him and he would use them as his footstool. I can't do this very long. Uh, y'all clap or something? Okay, anyway, y'all don't have to clap. But anyway, anyway um, we're planking here in the sermon. So, so this is the, nah, that's not planking, is it? What would that be called? Oh, working my core, whatever, okay. So, ripped right here, okay? I won't show you today, but I don't want anybody to stumble by taking my shirt off or anything. But anyway, uh, yeah, just ripped, okay? So the idea here is that the king is sitting on his throne, and his enemies are now being propped up beneath, are propping up his feet. Now, here's what this means. It means that as Christians... We have hope beyond the struggle. That this cosmic struggle between good and evil does not escape the sovereignty of God. And one day, uh, it's going to end. And when it ends, God's Messiah will reign as King of kings and Lord of lords for all eternity. So in verse 42, Jesus asks this question. He says, David calls him Lord. How then... Can the Messiah be his son? So Jesus gives them a riddle. And here's the riddle. How can the Messiah be the son of King David, who died many moons ago, but he's also the Lord 
of King David. Anybody here like riddles? Okay, let me give you a couple here and see if you can get them. If you've heard it before, don't shout it out, okay? You know, but if you can get it, get it. Um, 8.30 service was getting rowdy. Anyway. <laughs> I am the beginning, sorry, I am the beginning of the end and the end of time and space. I am essential to creation and I surround every place. Anybody know the answer? It's not, it's not love. Uh, do what now? Who said E? You got it. E, the letter E. You have to kind of look at it. E's like, I am the beginning of end, get it? And the end of time and space. Yeah, there, now y'all got it, okay? So confusing. You'll be okay, Mason. Mason, you're a, you're a high school graduate now, man. You can, you can, you can handle this. Okay, here's, here's another one. Say my name and I disappear. Say my name and I disappear. What did someone say? Silence, you guys got it. Okay, so here's, here's essentially, I kind of put it together. I'm not good at writing riddles, but here's the best I can do, okay? So here's essentially the riddle that Jesus is giving him. The king had a lord who gave him a son. The king then died and his son became king. The king went to heaven where his son was his lord. Who is the son? It's Jesus. And the son has to be both God and and man. So theologically, we understand that Jesus is fully divine. He is God. And yet at the same time, he is fully man. The term for that, you all ready for a fancy term? The hypostatic union of Christ. Fully God, fully man. It is proper, it is okay to refer to Jesus as the, the God-man. And so Jesus is referring to himself as the Messiah here, and he's letting them know that he's not just a man who's going to lead a political or military revolution, but he is the God-man. He is the Lord who became man. The gospel is a story of hope that takes place in a context of struggle. And in Jesus, God himself physically entered the struggle. God took on flesh and he tabernacled, or he lived among us. We call that, what do we call it? It starts with an I? Christmas, right. The incarnation. God taking on flesh and dwelling among us. That is, that is what we celebrate at Christmas. And, 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 and Jesus lived life as the Son of God, fully God, fully man, and he experienced life like we do. He, he was raised in a family. He went to Nazareth Elementary School. Uh, he he uh, probably played football for the Nazareth Fighting Goats. I don't know. You know, I mean, he, he grew up living life like we do. He, he had a job before he became, I started to say before he became Jesus, but before he started preaching, he, he was a carpenter. He ran the carpenter shop in, in Nazareth. And so, he had people do him wrong. He had people say lies about him. He had people misunderstand him. He knew what it was like to be hungry. He knew what it was like to be tired. He knew what it was like to sit in synagogue and just wish the rabbi would quit talking. He knew all those things, okay? Hebrews chapter 4 and verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tested in every way as we are, but here's the fundamental difference, yet without sin. He lived life as a man, yet he did not live life 
as a sinner. At his birth, the Lord took on flesh and became a man. The Messiah is a God-man who lived life in flesh but without sin. On the cross, the God-man, suspended between heaven and earth, bore our sins, absorbed God's wrath, and tasted death. Then through his resurrection, the God-man brought life from death. He reversed Eden's curse. In his person, he brought hope to all people and called them not just to follow a set of teachings, but he called them to believe in him because in him is salvation. At his ascension, the son of the son, the God man, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, and God the Father has appointed him, Hebrews tells us, heir of all things. What that means is God has said to the Son, sit at my right hand, and all creation is under your control. You are the King of Kings. And so when a person turns from sin and places faith in the Son, God gifts us with His grace. He empowers us with His Spirit. And He brings hope. Hope to our faith that lasts forever. And hear me on this, okay? As a Christian, Jesus Christ, through the power of the Holy Spirit, is King of our heart. King of your heart. He is to reign in every area of your life. You say, okay, Lash, I, I get this, but the struggle continues and it's real. My life is a testimony to pain. I struggle to get along with family. I struggle to get along with the daily grind or to get through the daily grind. I'm enduring this struggle. What's God going to do about that? Coming soon to a world near you is the next chapter. Christians believe in a hope that goes beyond the here and now. In chapter 1 of the story, the Lord came back as the innocent baby of Bethlehem. In chapter 1 of the story, the Lord hideously died upon a cross, bearing bearing our sins upon Him. But in chapter 2, He comes back. And when He comes back in chapter 2, He comes back as the King of Kings. He comes back with all authority as the heir of all things. In verse 45, Jesus begins talking about this. He says, while the Bible says, while the people were listening, he said to his disciples, Beware of the scribes who want to go around in long robes, who love greetings in the marketplace, the front seats of the synagogues, and places of honor at the banquets. They devour widows' houses and say long prayers just for show. What he's getting at is, hey, these religious leaders that are, that are scheming together for my death, they are nauseating to look at the way that they are living their life. They are so corrupt that they devour widows' houses. In other words, they steal everything that the widows have in the name of God. You see, these corrupt people that you wish God would do something about, one day when the Messiah comes back, Jesus says, these will receive greater punishment. I'm coming back, and I will take care of the injustice and the darkness. Now, we, we don't talk about this much anymore in church. I find that hope is probably the most underdeveloped doctrine in Christianity right now. We talk a lot about the cross. We talk a lot about uh, the gospel, but we don't talk about the hope part of the gospel very much. I think sometimes we don't talk about it very much because we're afraid people will think we're weird. 
that there's coming this day when God comes again. But the Scriptures point to it over and over again, and the Scriptures encourage those that are believers to anchor their lives in this hope that one day Christ will make all things new and He will display His power. You do not have to fall into the trap of dualism that says that God needs evil in order to be God. But one day God will judge evil and judge the rebellion and God will make all things new. And Jesus says, these religious leaders who are scheming against me, just remember, I'll be back. And whenever I come back, I'll set the record straight. Somewhere deep inside, each of us knows that this can't last forever. When you read the political dialogue these days, whenever you think about the world, somewhere deep inside of us, we, we kind of know it, it, it won't last forever. Perhaps that explains our society's preoccupation with movies about superheroes, aliens, villains, and tidal waves that wipe everybody out, right? Now, you know you've seen it, right? Yeah, you've seen those movies. And we almost have a preoccupation. Well, I was at kids camp this week, and as I talked to the kids, I found out that their movies, their books, their video games are all set in the end-of-the-world type context, that God's going to wipe or somebody's going to wipe everything out. Why? Because somewhere written on the human heart is this idea that this can't last forever. Aging testifies to this as well. No matter how many laps you run, no matter how many weights you, you lift, no matter how many vegetable drinks you chug, you still age. And it testifies to the fact that this doesn't last forever. So what's the answer? The answer is not to give up hope. The answer is not to settle for a watered-down version of hope that just is wishful thinking, hoping for a better tomorrow. Nor is the answer to live out your days chasing empty storylines. Neither is the answer to uh, embrace some type of nihilistic existence that leads you to cynicism that says everything's just cause and effect and I'm just a pawn in the, in the cosmic game of chess. And so, so I'm just going to kind of just give up and just... just exist, nor is the answer to merely just look inside you and say, okay, uh, I can't control the world around me, so I'll just look inside me, find my inner light, find an existential truth that becomes my hope and my guide. Rather, the scriptures say there is something that goes beyond you, something that goes beyond the world that we see, something that goes beyond anything that we can imagine, and that is the hope of glory that is found in Jesus Christ. And it's a hope that never ends. It's a hope that is anchored to God's love. It is a hope that you can never be separated from. It is a hope that you do not deserve. It is a hope that comes from God through Christ and is given to you and lands in your heart. And it's a hope that can see you through any struggle in life. Repentance comes before faith. Faith comes before hope. Hope leads us to the beauty of God's love. Adorn yourself in God's love and realize that as you live your life in the love of God, you have a hope. You have a hope that goes beyond anything that you see. You have a hope that lasts forever. And you have a hope that anchors and connects today to eternity because you have a Savior who brings you that hope. Would you guys be so kind as to bow your heads as we come to a time of commitment. The band's going to come and they're going to lead us in worship. I want to ask this question this morning. Has there ever been a time in your life where you placed your hope in Jesus Christ? Where you were saved? Where you 
truly placed your faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And if there hasn't been that time, I want to invite you to make this your moment. I'm not going to call you out. I'm not going to embarrass you, but I'm going to ask you to call out to God from your heart to God's and just call out. Make this your moment. You say, Lash, I don't know what to say. Maybe you could say something like this. Heavenly Father, I'm a sinner. I've done things I shouldn't. I've rebelled against you. And I ask for your forgiveness. This morning in this church, I'm trusting in Jesus Christ as my Savior and as my Lord. And I'm asking you to change me. I'm asking for your forgiveness. And I'm asking for your power to help me to live my life in your love. I want to be a follower of Christ. I want this to be my day of salvation. Pray that prayer in the name of Jesus. And if today was the day that you truly gave your heart to God for the very first time, I want to be a pastor to you. I want to encourage you. I'll be here at the front during this next song. Come and tell me. I want to pray with you. I'll be here after the service as well. I'd love to just help you any way that I can. Anybody else in the room that has a prayer request, something that I can encourage you in, it's always my joy to help you. Heavenly Father, I thank you so much for this dear church. I pray that we might have a hope that goes beyond just better days tomorrow. May we have a hope that's anchored in your love that lasts forever. May we rejoice in that hope and be glad because we know that nothing can separate us from it. In Jesus' name we pray. In Jesus' name we worship. Amen.